It's been an enormous privilege to be back in Albuquerque at Desert Springs Church with the surrounding churches that have joined in for the conference. Uh, a huge privilege to connect again with Ryan Kelly and his family and um, to see again Trent and to uh, enjoy the ministry of Drew and others and to meet some of you who've worked behind the scenes. Only those who have run conferences know that it's not done by the three or four, four blighters at the front. You know, there are about a hundred people behind the scenes that are, are doing all the work and, and for them too, my warmest thanks and appreciation. Now please turn in Holy Scripture to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and I am going to read verse 19 to the end of the chapter. A couple of times over the weekend, um, I've mentioned that it is the custom in churches around the world in many denominations after scripture is read for the person reading to say, this is the word of the Lord. And the whole congregation responds, thanks be to God. So we'll try that again today, shall we? Hear then what Holy Scripture says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So how shall we understand this parable? Is Jesus saying that there is a simple reversal between one status in this life and one status in the next life that is always operative, live life well, and in hell. <laughs> Suffer pain, enjoy great gain. Everything gets switched around, that's 
all there is to it. But so much of Scripture stands against such simplistic accounts. After all, there are some accounts in Scripture of very rich people who are godly. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Job, a righteous man. The early days, at least, of Solomon. Esther. In the New Testament, Philemon, possibly Theophilus. Of course, there are some rich dudes that are really corrupt, but it's not a simple switch, is it? Rich here, hell there. It's more complicated than that. Moreover, although the Bible has a great deal to say about the poor who are oppressed or betrayed or beaten up or crushed, the poor who are victims, Yet the Bible is realistic enough to recognize that sometimes people are poor because they're lazy or because they've given themselves to drink or they've burned themselves out. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So destruction comes upon you, Proverbs says. So once again, the Bible is rich and careful to Recognize that there are diversities of causes of poverty. Yet there is clearly some sort of reversal that takes place in this case. Why? What's going on? Well, let me begin by drawing your attention to some contextual clues in the immediately surrounding passages to orientate you to what is said in this particular parable. Number one. Verse 13 of this chapter, Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, that reminds us in the first place that Luke's gospel actually says quite a lot of things about money. One of the things it is constantly doing is warning people not to turn money into a god. And it's very clear here that money become, becomes for Luke a kind of test case. You, you cannot serve God as God, loving Him with heart and soul and mind and strength and have all of your fantasy and your imagination and your dream world and your hopes and what you covet the most, what you long for, what you, what you fantasize over, something else. You cannot have two masters. You might have two bosses. But when you have two bosses, they'd better be in agreement. If they're conflicting with each other, sooner or later, you owe allegiance to one and not to the other. So it is with God. That's why in Scripture, covetousness is seen as idolatry. Because what you covet, what you want the most, becomes for you God. And you cannot love God and then love something else. That makes two gods. And sooner or later, what you really have is an idol. And the test case that Luke presents is Money. You cannot serve both God and money. Then second, two verses earlier, verse 11. <clears throat> this at the end of the parable of the shrewd manager. It's a difficult parable. I don't have time to unpack it. 
But one of the things that Jesus says towards the end of this parable, verse 11, is this. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, if God bestows some benefits, some physical benefits, some money, some, some cash, some 401 retirement plan or something else to you, and you, you, you prove utterly faith, faithless in that domain, then why on earth should God give you spiritual insight and spiritual wealth? He'll prove faithless in that domain too. Isn't that an interesting argument? It's not the way we normally think. But again, it's typical of Luke's concern to think through what it means for a disciple of Jesus to have any sort of relationship with money. And then third, verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, this brings us to one of the minor themes of Luke, but it keeps surfacing again and again and again. It's self justification. Yesterday, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan in chapter 10 of this gospel. And there in the exchange between Jesus and the, the, the lawyer, when the lawyer finds he's losing the argument, we, we are told he, willing to justify himself, asks another question. Did you see? People want to justify themselves. And, and in this case, they, they, they want to justify themselves because they have money. What they're saying when they hear Jesus teach about money is something like this. Well, of course, Jesus is going to say something like that because he's a poor preacher boy. Comes from up north, funny accent, no money himself. So, of course, he makes all these stupid remarks about money. If he were entrusted with wealth himself, as <coughs> we are, <coughs> yes, um, then he would see things just a wee bit differently. And thus, you see, they're justifying themselves with reference to their money. It, it is so easy to, to find your identity in the size of your house or the, the glory of your clothing or the, 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 the class of your car or the, the size of your retirement package or whatever. It's easy to justify yourself, to find your status in such things. And Jesus goes so far as to say, the language is stunning. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Do you hear that? It doesn't say if people highly value detestable things, it's detestable in God's sight. But more generically, what people value highly, including good things, is detestable in God's sight. Because even if you want a good thing, and money can be a good and useful thing, if, if you want a good thing so much that that becomes God for you, then God has been de-godded. It's another form of idolatry. So it's a way of checking out our hearts. And this matter of self-justification crops up again a couple of chapters later in another well-known parable. Chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... That is, they were self-justified. 
and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Do you want God's pronouncement on who is justified? Then you approach him, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And if instead you're self-justified because you think you are so righteous, then the only justification you have is self-justification which on the last day doesn't count for very much. And then there are a couple of other contextual clues I should mention. This parable in front of us in Luke chapter 16 is actually one of three parables. In chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, a prodigal wastes his father's possessions. Then at the beginning of chapter 16, a dishonest servant wastes his master's possessions. And then in our parable, a rich man wastes his own possessions. Do you see how Luke is interested in how people handle money? And the waste of what God entrusts to you? There's some themes that are driving through here. One more small contextual clue that I mentioned yesterday. I want to draw your attention to it again. It's it starts all the way back in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we read, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's chapter 9 in a book with 24 chapters. That is just over a third of the way through the book. Already, Luke is depicting Jesus resolutely setting his face for Jerusalem. That is where he will be crucified where he will die, where he will rise again and return to the Father's right hand. Now, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have different ways of organizing their material. Some follow a kind of historical, sequential account, and some have topical arrangements of things. Do, do, do you see? One of the things that Luke does is picture Jesus resolutely heading toward Jerusalem already in the ninth chapter. And then again and again and again, that's what Luke depicts. He mentions again, as Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus was committed to going to Jerusalem. So that what this does, it, it, it says in effect that everything that takes place after Luke 9.51 is happening under the shadow of the impending cross. In other words, if you read this book as a whole, then when you read this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you have to keep reminding yourself, Jesus says this on the way to the cross. Why? Now, with that background, let's take a look at the parable in front of us. It's divided into two parts. First, there's the narrative, verses 19 to 23, the contrast between two different men. And then, second part, the dialogue, 
the blindness of a damned man in the dialogue between Abraham and the rich fool. So the narrative itself. Look at how it unpacks. We're introduced to this rich man in life characterized by sumptuous living. Then you're introduced to Lazarus, ill, poor, weak, and dying. And then suddenly in the next verse, you're in the afterlife. You continue with Lazarus, but now he's at Abraham's side. And the rich man, for his part, is in an agony in hell. So you have rich man, Lazarus, then in the afterlife, Lazarus, and the rich man. So let's begin with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Purple cloth in the ancient world was very expensive. There were only two ways of dyeing fabric, a deep, rich purple. And both of them were rather expensive. Therefore, if someone wanted to flaunt their wealth, they wore a lot of purple. That's what this chap is doing. In fact, a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. The word rendered fine linen is usually used for undergarments. I think there's a bit of humor here. In case anyone is interested, even his underwear was posh. He lived in luxury every day, sumptuous feasting, multi-course meals, servants waiting on his every whim. And then by contrast, you're introduced to Lazarus. And the first thing that strikes you is, this poor chap is named. We don't know the name of the rich man. In stories at this time, only the important people are named. So already by not naming the rich man, Jesus is telling a story as to say, in effect, this rich man who seems so important and is so posh is not all that important after all. But Lazarus is named. And, and there's irony here. The word Lazarus means the one whom God helps. And you read that and you think, ooh, this is strange. If this is what the one whom God helps looks like, Pity the poor blighter whom God doesn't help. But then you're supposed to read the entire story. And by the end of the story, it's pretty clear which one it is whom God helps. Which becomes a way of saying, don't judge too soon whom it is that God helps. You can't always tell right away. At 50 billion years into eternity, it'll be pretty clear. Two minutes into eternity, it'll be pretty clear. Who is it whom God helps? And you cannot make your assessments based on what happens in this life alone. It's too complex. This man, we're told, was a beggar. And apparently a beggar because he was too ill to work. He was covered with sores. He was hungry. In village life in the first century, 
where there were no medical clinics or practitioners or the like, then it was understood, it was the social structure of the day, that the rich would look after them. The ordinary villager wouldn't have all that much himself, but those who were well-to-do were expected to be generous with their alms. So they would provide bed and food and clothing and shelter for those who were dirt poor or sick or the like. So we're told that this poor beggar was laid at the rich man's gate. That's what the villagers would do because they couldn't handle it themselves. So, so, so they, they laid him in front of the rich man's gate, expecting the rich man to look after him. That was what was expected to be done in such a society. Mind you, the very fact that this man had a gate is also a way of saying he was really posh. He didn't just live in a nice big house. He, he lived in a walled compound with a gate. In fact, there's mention immediately of dogs. In first century Palestine, nobody had dogs as pets. Nice little labradoodles <laughs> being stroked and fed chow food. No, 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 no. Dogs were either wild dogs, think Australian dingoes, or they were work dogs, especially guard dogs. So in a walled compound with a gate, Almost certainly, you're supposed to be thinking of these dogs as guard dogs. A way of keeping people away and out. So this poor man, sick, a beggar, hungry, desirous of eating just the scraps that fall from a rich man's table. Think dog food. Do you remember the account of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7? There in her conversation with Jesus, she says, even the dogs eat the scraps that come from the master's table. They didn't have tins of dog food that you can go and get in a supermarket all carefully sorted out so that your dog will be healthy. The dogs ate the scraps that came from the table. So if we're told that this poor man longed at least to eat the scraps from the rich man's table, he's saying in effect that he at least wishes he could have had the dog food. But he wasn't given anything, not a thing. The only creatures who showed real compassion were the dogs, the guard dogs. As he leaned up against the gate, the dogs came and licked his sores, we're told. And then they both die. What are we told? The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. There's no mention of a burial. Probably cast into a common pauper's grave. No money to pay for funerals. The villagers would be poor and the rich man wasn't going to give him anything. But he's carried to Abraham's side. Literally, he's carried to Abraham's bosom. And that needs to be explained. Now, I was brought up in French Canada. French Canadians have ways of expressing affection and warmth and so on that are a little bit different from those with Anglo-Saxon roots. So I'm quite comfortable in French and 
Italian and Spanish context where it's, mon frère. Yes, I, I can do that. I, I, I can do that. And then I go to the Middle East and some of my Muslim friends uh, want three kisses and I can never remember which side to start on, which sometimes makes things difficult as you're getting close. <laughs> but there is a part of me because my, my parents are both from the UK. My mother was a Londoner, my father was from Belfast. Um, there, there's a part of me that is still genetically inclined, I, I think, to imagine that the proper distance between adult males is about 36 inches. <laughs> then I go to Latin America where everybody's under the delusion that the proper distance is 18 inches. And, and so I'm, I'm with my Latin American friends in Colombia or wherever it is, Brazil, and, and they get a little closer and I back up, and then they get a little closer and I, I back up, and, and I know what's going on, you know. I'm culturally enough aware that, that I know I want my 36 inches, so I back up, and, and, and they, they, they don't know about my 36 inches, so they get closer. So I think I'll try an experiment. I'll stick my foot out and see what happens. <laughs> they step on it. In, in other words, there, there are cultural differences that allow proximities that um, we don't know much about in the West. So um, in a couple of months, I'll be back in a couple of Middle Eastern countries and Muslim friends there, male friends, will want to go down the street with me holding hands. Um, that, my Anglo-Saxon roots are a little uncomfortable at that point. So what's going on here? on Abraham's bosom? Well, remind yourself what happens at the Lord's Last Supper. In those days, most people ate sitting down, except for feasts. When you lay out on a narrow little mat, a little bed, not a full-size single bed, you know, this, this wide, just a narrow little thing. And the table with the food was just six inches off the ground. And you leaned on one arm like that, had a piece of bread in front of you. You broke off pieces and put it in bowls of, of either meat puree or fruit puree. And you, you ate pieces. And you might reach across the table and put a piece in your friend's mouth too. And you broke off another piece and got some more puree and stuck it in your mouth. So that meant your back was next to the person next to you, behind you. And the next person to you assuming he's leaning on his left arm, he's got his back to you. Supposing he wants to ask you a question. Then what he would do is simply push on his arm and his head would fall back on your chest. And he'd ask his question because otherwise he's facing in the wrong direction. So you remember what happens in the last meal before the cross. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples start saying, oh, is, is it I? No, 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 surely not me. It can't be. And there's consternation all around the table. John seems to be right next to Jesus. Peter's a little farther away. So he signals, psst, psst, ask him, ask him who it is, ask him. So John pushes on his arm and lays his head on Jesus' breast. That's why John comes to be known as the one who laid his head on Jesus' breast. So he was the one right next to him in the position of honor at the master's right hand. 
and laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. Culture, different ways of signaling intimacy. Do you see? Now, this does not mean that if you and I go to McDonald's afterwards, you have any right to lay your head on my breast. Just let me make that (laughs) clear. But what we're getting in the description here of this poor beggar Lazarus, he's now in glory and his head is on Abraham's bosom. That is, he's at a banquet. He's at a feast. One assumes the messianic banquet. And he's next to Abraham in such intimacy that his head is on Abraham's bosom. That's the depiction. And the rich man? The rich man also died, we're told, and was buried. The mention of his burial undoubtedly was a great occasion. Civic feast day, maybe public lectures on all the contributions this man made to his society. I mean, he was a great man, probably a proper mausoleum. But in hell, he was in torment. And somehow in this parable, we do not know how, it might just be for parabolic reasons, Somehow he he looks up and he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. We're not told how he recognizes him, but in the nature of a parable, you can can not have to answer such questions. He looks up, he sees Abraham, and he recognizes Lazarus. He recognizes both of them, and that's the narrative. Now we come to the dialogue. The dialogue between Abraham and this rich man now in hell. It goes through three pairs of exchanges. In each case, the rich man says something, and Abraham responds. First, verse 24. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this flame. Isn't that the most astonishing comment? Put yourself, if you can, in this rich man's place. You're the person who has not even given dog food to Lazarus. And now in hell, you look up and Lazarus is next to Abraham. What's the first thing you say? Don't you think you'd say something like, oh boy, did I get that one wrong. Oh, Lazarus, I am so sorry. I was so blind. I was so selfish. Can you ever forgive me? This is so shameful. I am so sorry. I beg of you, please. Wouldn't you expect to say something like that? But this rich man doesn't even address Lazarus. He he wants Lazarus sent to dip his finger in water to cool the rich man's tongue. In other words, he ignored Lazarus when Lazarus was in pain, and now he wants something from Lazarus to relieve his own pain. 
He still thinks of himself as being at the center of the universe. There's not a hint of repentance anywhere. He demands services from the one to whom he would not even give dog food. The rich man, even in hell, cannot imagine giving up his self-importance, his self-justification. Indeed, he plays the race and covenant card. Father Abraham, you know, I'm one of the, I'm one of the Israelites, you know. Look at me, Father Abraham. And Abraham's response? Abraham reviews the situation. <clears throat> the same sequence. Rich man, Lazarus, Lazarus, rich man. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. So he basically reviews the narrative. There is a kind of reversal that takes place. And then he adds, verse 26, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. In other words, it sounds as if, according to Jesus, once you get to hell, it's too late to think of ever getting out. Too late. But perhaps no less stunning is the fact that Jesus depicts this unbridgeable chasm both ways. No one from there can come here. From hell can come to where Abraham is. Now you can understand why some might want to. But he also says no one from here can go there. Who would want to? Well, in the narrative, the only person who might want to is Lazarus. As if Lazarus is saying, oh, okay, it's, it's okay, I'll bring him some water, I'll go. Then the second exchange, verses 27 to 29. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. So now he's the beggar. Initially, he was the rich man on earth, and he was dealing with the beggar. Now he has himself become the beggar. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He is still concerned only with his own. In the first exchange with his own self. In this exchange with his own family. But he still doesn't address Lazarus. There's no sign of repentance. If Lazarus, still not addressed, cannot be used as a table waiter to bring him some water, perhaps he could be sent as an errand boy. And Abraham's response? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Or to use our idiom today, they've got the Bible. 
They've got the Bible. And at the time, these folks would go to synagogue every Sabbath. They'd hear the Bible read. They'd hear it taught. Lots of warnings and promises, instruction on grace and hope, the justice of God and the mercy of God and the need for repentance. Ultimately, the pictures of a sacrificial system in which someone, something's got to pay for sin by death somehow. They've got the Bible. It's all there. So why on earth do you think that they're any more likely to repent because Lazarus shows up? They've got the Bible. That brings us to the third exchange, verses 30 and 31. Now the rich man in hell tries to correct Abraham's theology. No, Father Abraham, you got that one wrong. If someone from the dead goes to him, then they will repent. In other words, he is still trying to justify himself. So much so that although he is in hell, he's prepared to correct heaven's theology. As far as I can see, in Scripture, there's not a hint that in hell anyone repents. They want to get out. That's understandable. They might even have some concern for their family. That's understandable. But there's not a hint here of contrition, repentance, no apology let alone repentance, and still arguing that their view of the universe is right over against God's. In hell, they're still justifying themselves. And Abraham replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And as Luke records these words, living now on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, knowing where this book is going, it doesn't stop in chapter 16, it goes all the way to chapters 23 and 24. He knows someone who did rise from the dead. And so very, very many do not believe. I venture to say that there are some in this room today who deep down know that Jesus rose from the dead, but have not repented and do not believe. Tragic beyond words. Blind past belief. So let me conclude with some final theological and pastoral reflections. Number one. 
there is a sphere of rejoicing to pursue. There is a place of torment to flee. There is a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness to gain. There is a hell not to go to. We can spend so much attention on how to live Christianly here that we overlook how often Jesus tells us what we must be doing here is preparing for there. What shall it profit anyone to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I think part of our problem is because some of us have been snookered by visions of heaven that are not really all that attractive. You see these little line diagrams where you're dressed in a white nightgown, sitting on a puffy cloud, strumming a harp. You think if that's what heaven's like after the first billion years or so, no matter how much classical music you like, you might be a little sick of that harp. <laughs> Besides, white nightgowns don't suit me, you know? I need dark colors. Doesn't go well with my complexion. Not into nightgowns. And so you can become really cynical and sort of snide and make a few funny remarks and, and, and press on. If, that, if that's what heaven is like, good grief. So you have no longing to go there. The only reason you want to go to heaven is because it sounds a little better than hell. And then you stop to remember all of the different pictures that the Bible offers you of a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. There's so many pictures. And we've reduced them all in our culture to little line diagrams of people in white nightgowns. Let me, let me remind you of a few of them. In the parable of the talents, for example, Jesus says to those who have worked hard and multiplied the master's resources here, he says, well, well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. Come and enter your master's happiness. In other words, one of the things that happens in the new heaven and the new earth is you get a real job. You thought you were busy now? Man, you've been busy over a few little things here, piddly things. Now you're going to have a real job. You're going to have things to do. But without tiredness, without fatigue, without corruption, there'll be things to learn, goals to set, serving the master for all eternity. And then sometimes it's seen as the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the consummation of intimacy between Christ and His church. And that's actually pictured as the union of marriage. The language is almost risque. But the reason why God uses that language, not only does it fulfill a whole trajectory of such language across all of Scripture, but it's a way of saying the greatest joy and intimacy and pleasure that a man and a woman can know in this life is sex in a well-ordered, intimate marriage. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait till you see the union of Christ and the church. Sheer pleasure. And then there's those pictures of 10,000 times 10,000 gathered around the throne, singing, spectacular singing. Oh, maybe you're one of those people who's tone deaf and don't like choirs. That'll change. 
And for those of us who do like choirs, you know, I don't know what kind of choir. I, I'm partial to Welsh men's voices. Imagine a hundred thousand of them. Yes! Singing, and can it be around the throne? It'll be fantastic. And, and then, and then, then, this, this depiction of actually seeing God. We're told, told that in heaven, the highest order of angels cannot see God. They hide their faces with their wings. But we're told that God's image bearers, now redeemed, now transformed, we're told in Revelation 22 verse 5, they will see his face. Christians across the ages have called that the visio dei, the vision of God. Pure, spectacular, intoxicating bliss. And sometimes, sometimes to mix the metaphor, the new heaven and the new earth is, is pictured as rest. Are you tired, worn out, toward the end of yourself? Rest. Small wonder, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures. Therefore, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice that does not say, guard your heart. There are passages that say that. Guard your heart, for out of it are the wellsprings of life. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, choose your treasure. Because what you treasure is what your heart will pursue. So one of the reasons why our hearts do not pursue a new heaven and the new earth is because we haven't adequately detected the treasure there. The treasure of lying on Abraham's bosom, as it were. Do you see? Which means we need to remind ourselves by all the voices of Scripture as to what this will be like so that we start singing with the church in every generation that cries, yes, even so, come Lord Jesus. Did you see? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. When you wake up in the middle of the night and you're in a sort of half fantasy land, do you ever start dreaming of how great the new heaven and the new earth will be? Choose your treasure. Because the only alternative is hell. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel who stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. The pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness when death came was left far behind. The angel who opened the record, not a trace of his greatness could find. The moral man came to the judgment, but his self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed on as mortal men too. The soul that had put off salvation, not today, I'll get saved by and by, no time now to think of religion. At last he had found time to die. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed but their prayer was too late.
There is a sphere of unalloyed, holy bliss to be pursued, a place of torment to flee. The church is first and foremost not the community of those who want to bring their children up well, though we hope it will be that, but those who know how to die well. Second, the things in which we take so much pride now, wealth, ethnicity, religious privilege, charm, youth, good looks, intelligence, education, may actually blind us as to our need of grace. We must constantly ask the question, who is Lazarus? Who is the one whom God helps? And finally, God has not left himself without witness. We must listen to the witness of Scripture or we are damned. God himself says, to these will I look, they who are humble and of a contrite spirit and who tremble at my word. Let us pray. Grant, Lord God, we beg of you a deep understanding that this narrative takes place under the impending shadow of the cross. At the end of the day, we are accepted into these heavenly glories because Christ died for sinners. And those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is great, O oh Lord God, increase our vision, our understanding of the mercy extended to us that we may join in unalloyed praise. And can it be that I should gain? And for those, Lord God, for whom this still seems strange and alien and fearful, will you not work in their hearts where they sit right now by your Spirit? so that in genuine, proper fear, fear of judgment, but also hope, because in you alone is mercy. From their heart of hearts, they lift their minds heavenward even now and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I believe Help my unbelief, for Jesus' sake.